0: Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Dr. Tina Leakey, Principal Advisor at the Behavioural Insights Team and Peter Randall, President of the fintech firm Settle. Dr. Tina Leakey is a principal advisor at the Behavioural Insights Team, or BIT, a social purpose company that applies behavioural science to public policy. Tina leads BIT's work on gender equality, as well as employment and welfare, and is a passionate advocate for evidence-based policy and experimentation, working with private and public sector organisations to empirically test how best to improve gender equality and women's career progression. Tina is currently running several randomised controlled trials with UK employers to improve their gender pay gap. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Julia. Peter Randall is the president of the London-based fintech firm Settle. And Settle is an institutional payment and settlement infrastructure provider using blockchain technology. Peter has been credited with fundamentally changing the European equity exchange market through the establishment of ChaiX Europe. As founder and CEO, Peter led the company's growth from an unknown multilateral trading facility to become one of the top five trading venues in Europe. And prior to ChaiX, Peter was COO at Instanet Europe and Executive Director of Fixed Protocol. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And as always, at the start of each episode, we invite each guest to take a minute to tell us what they're up to. So, Tina, let's start with you. What are you up to?
1: At the BIT, what we try and do is apply behavioral science to different complex problems related to human behavior Uh, in the context of diversity we're interested in on the one hand in how individuals make decisions why does someone choose the fruit over the donut or the ice cream Um, but also why do people decide to apply for jobs why does someone um, decide to ask for a pay rise we know for example there there's differences between men and women but also what we try and look at is how behavioral science can help us understand how organizations function and how organizational processes sometimes create disparities based on different characteristics Um, and so based on all of that evidence we have from behavioural science, what we then do is try and actually go into organisations and evaluate rigorously uh, using things like randomised controlled trials to really see what actually shifts the dial, what actually does make a difference in an organisational setting. And
0: Peter, what are you up to these days?
2: Settle's all about trying to make a difference, trying to make a difference in the post-trade space, which is uh, something which puts most people to sleep. But it is actually very important when financial institutions have dealt with each other, uh, markets have dealt with each other, brokers have dealt with each other, insurance has dealt with each other. When that is all done, you've then got to record the books and records. You've got to make sure that the uh, obligations have been entered into properly and are recorded properly. That's something which has never really been uh, a particularly exciting area of, uh, of, of city activity. Um, but recently, as a result of new technology, uh, that's changing. Uh, and our um, uh, challenge, if you will, is to, is to bring 21st century technology to a segment of the market, which is still basically running COBOL on mainframes. So very exciting. uh, And we see a lot of the same sorts of issues that we've talked about uh, earlier on uh, in in the um, introduction to this process uh, in in technology as well as we do in uh, in the overall business world.
0: And I, and I really wish we had the time today to explore how blockchain works. That's probably another conversation for for another um, another podcast. But but I think it is it is fascinating that that blend of um, as you were saying, uh, Tina, about how organisations function uh, from a large scale side and where the data is behind that, and then also thinking about how small organisations with ambition to become large ones uh, actually grow over time. And and Peter, um, you know, it's been thirty five years. I understand of financial services experience. With, and you've worked. You've worked at both ends of the spectrum, with large global trading firms, and also uh, a CEO of small ones as well. One of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast, in the context of diversity inclusion, is also age. And there's a general sort of concern that when we all hit 50, and I have to confess, I'm not a million miles away from that myself. uh, You should be surprised by that statement, by the way. Uh, But actually, when you hit the age of 50, that there's a risk you just fall off a cliff. Obviously, we're delighted to see you haven't. Um, So what's been the secret of your success? I think the
2: secret, uh, if there is one, is to understand that uh, you've got to pace yourself. As your uh, age changes, then your um, experience changes. As your experience changes, then... um, if you're uh, able and wise, uh, you can uh, parlay that into um, useful insights to help other people, parts of your team, members of the uh, of the group that you're involved with. Um, the, the the important thing though is to is to understand what your own limitations are and to make no secrets of them. Don't try and hide them. Don't try and uh, fake things. Be be very very open. A Good example of this was um, some little while ago. We decided on um, one of the firms that I was with to do a team building exercise. Uh, and we all went off to the Lake District and we did something called the Fred Whitten Challenge, which for anybody who wishes to look at it, it's about 175 kilometers and it's about 4,000 meters of climbing. So that's something you cycle in a day. Um, we went round. I was by far and away the oldest and I went round on my own and I finished. There was a lot of betting on whether I'd finish, but... I finished not because I was stronger, because I clearly wasn't, but because I'd got it between my ears. I finished because actually, in their way of describing me, I was the grey wolf. I could sit there and I could learn, I could watch, and I didn't have to compete, but I was able to finish. I think that that's about pacing yourself. It's about understanding that as life changes, you change, and as you change, then um, you, can, you can offer a different insight.
0: And, and as you're talking to other sort of employees who are perhaps heading towards their fifties, in some cases even their sixties, I mean, what advice do you give them? Because actually, there's a degree there of uh, empathetic and vulnerable leadership, if you like. And what, what what advice do you say to mostly male colleagues who perhaps are a little kind of siloed in their mentality about their contribution to work?
3: Well, I think
2: it. I think a lot of these things, um, <clears throat> Julia. I'm sure. Tina probably has a a similar view, but I I think a lot of things actually go in cycles. And I think it's quite important to understand what cycles look like. And the first time you come into a cycle, you've never seen it before, so it's all new. So that's very interesting. Second time you come into a cycle, well, you have seen it before and you kind of know a little bit about what you think the outcomes may be, but you've now only got two data points. By the third time you come into the cycle, you've got two data points. So you're getting better at refining what the answers are. So if we think about cycles, and I think that's quite an important um, uh, observation. If we think about cycles, it brings us back, I think, rather neatly to, uh, um, I think it's a Jewish proverb, but it's one that I, I think of as being very important. And it says, a third of your life you learn, a third of your life you earn, and a third of your life you return. So, you know, on that sort of basis, if you're in education and higher education until you're 25, uh, that's your learning piece. If you're working, you know, uh, at the coalface doing the, 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 the high, uh, high, high stress jobs, that's until um, you're 50. Much after that, it's about returning. And giving back is not just philanthropy, it's giving back in terms of your time, your experience, it's giving back in terms of mentoring, it's giving back in terms of lots of those uh, things which it's very easy for people to sort of say, well, you know, well, that's a luxury, that's a nice to have Actually, I think that's what makes the difference between successful organizations and organizations that that run into trouble. It's that they've forgotten almost or never bothered to learn the history of the market or the segment or the organization. And those in that other great proverb, those that never learned history are always doomed to repeat its mistakes.
0: So that's probably a good moment to turn to um, to Tina as well because you were talking about the data points and also organisational behaviour, if you like. Um, so, Tina, from your experience, I mean, is there, is there anything that Peter said that you'd like to comment on? And and uh, and, and and I'm very interested to hear kind of your thoughts around um, diversity inclusion in organisational change.
1: Sure, absolutely. I think Peter, something is said about cycles really resonated with me, um, perhaps more from a gender perspective than from an age perspective, because um, I think for women typically there's a first cycle which occurs around the time when you have children, um, and and we see a lot of women taking some time out of the labour market, um, out of their careers at that point. Um, and I think more and more now uh, organisations are thinking about setting up things like returner programs or sort of different ways of. A, in the first place, just attract, attracting women back uh, when they've taken that sort of sideways step, um, but also I think there is my kind of sense is that there's a current there isn't enough understanding within organisations around how do you support that cycle. We see that women's and men's earnings start to diverge at the point where where women have the first child, and basically. Um, at no point will they catch up with men's salaries, and if we're interested in the UK and things like the gender pay gap, which isn't, to be honest, you know, let's be let's be frank, isn't. Uh, particularly good and particularly in the financial services sector, I think part of the puzzle is is really thinking more carefully about these cycles and thinking about what can organisations do um, to support women both back, but also when they are out of the labour market with things like shared parental leave, things like, you know, how can we empower employees, um, if they're women or men, to think about how they can split that childcare Burden a bit differently.
0: And I imagine at the moment that a lot of organizations are thinking about, you know, having done the analysis of their pay gap and thinking about how do they can improve upon it. What are, are there some key tips that you give organizations or things they should focus on? Um I think there's Pretty lots of
1: things. Um, um, I think the first thing that a lot of employers have already started doing is exactly as you say, looking at their data. So um, they've now had to uh, produce some key data points around, you know, what is the difference in average um, hourly wages between men and women? Uh, what's the difference in bonus uh, pays between men and women? Uh, and typically what they're finding is that um, these gaps are driven by the fact that there are fewer women in the top sort of leadership ranks. Um, so I think what a lot of organizations and companies are looking at now is well how do we get more women into our executive positions how do we get more women um into the pipeline into the sort of middle to top middle management where they can then, then start moving upwards um and i think the answers are going to vary by organization but perhaps as a just a sort of trailer i can say um, a lot of the things that organizations are doing at the moment the sort of diversity and inclusion initiatives they've been um, spending money on for the past 20 years uh, but don't seem to re- be really producing the kinds of returns and the results that they were hoping this is something that i hear daily from uh, diversity and inclusion leads who say you know look what can we do that's different to what we've done so far because clearly something's not working um and i guess the sort of um I can go into it now, I guess the sort of two two key tips that we're seeing from the behavioural science side of things is first of all, to take transparency seriously. So really think about how can I make my, for example, recruitment processes or my promotion processes uh, such that people understand what, for example, women understand um what is required of me to progress to the next level. We know from research that women tend to be a bit more ambiguity averse or averse to sort of lack of information. So the classic sort of anecdote that's given is that, you know, you, you're a woman, you look at a job ad, uh, you go, oh, I've only got nine out of the 10 qualities they're asking of me. I can't possibly apply for this job. And you've got a bloke looking at the same job going, I've got five out of 10, I'll definitely give it a go. And so there's something about that level of ambiguity that that men seem to feel more comfortable with so if we are designing processes HR processes talent talent management processes can we on the one hand make them much more transparent for the people but also um, can we think about transparency from the perspective of the person making those hiring and promotion decisions so that's another piece um, which again from the behavioral science side we see is really crucial.
0: Right. And, and Peter, should I come to you at that point? Because I've yeah, been organisations. Like I
2: just like to pick up on one of those uh, points that Tina made, which I, I think is, is really interesting. You talk about ambiguity in, in let's say, in in uh, employment um, uh, advertisements, and yes, you could say, well, ambiguity could be the reason. Another reason could certainly be risk aversion. Uh, that that different people have different appetites for taking on risk and for dealing with risk and I think that's the it's quite important sometimes to 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 be um in some of the job advertisements to be deliberately vague because actually what you want to find is the people that are able to what you want to find is the is the people who are able to um to deal with risk because it's the risk that you're actually uh, seeking to to introduce into the system. It seems to me as well that um, a lot of what uh, Tina was saying, and you know, the, the rather disappointing results over the last 20 years, you know what that comes back to? It comes back to one really simple word, leadership. It comes back to some people in the leadership position not giving it enough welly, not giving it enough support, not delivering it. Um, In in the firms I've been involved in, and certainly where I've uh, had the uh, privilege of being able to influence uh, some of the board appointments, it's always been absolutely essential that we have senior women directors on the board, senior non-execs on the board. We've had senior women throughout the organisation, not for some sort of idea of trying to balance things up, but because we want a diversity, because the diversity gives us better decisions better decisions mean more commercial success. So that's really why I'm I'm very interested in it. The other thing that I also find very, very significant is the ability to be able to tap into an extraordinarily powerful labour market, which are those ladies that have gone off, have had their children, and now want to come back to work. They are a phenomenal resource. They are very, very focused, they're very, very trained, they're very dedicated, very productive. Most of all, they're very, very responsible. And so there's a sort of level of looking after things, of nurturing the the job and the, the position that they uh, have accepted with you, that, that gives you and them the ability to 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 prosper. And I think in terms of actually looking at the uh, the numbers. Uh, we run a tech firm. Sure, uh, we've got uh, uh, I think about seventy-five people at the moment, uh, and that's growing like smoke. Uh, we, a, uh, we could have had a we could have had a complete board meeting of the company and all its employees in the back of a London taxi in two thousand and fifteen, uh, and now we probably need a real a real boardroom. Um, but you know the point is that when you look down the list of people that work for us, yes, we have got uh, a good group a good representation uh, of of um, of ladies that's great when we do the numbers however the group of women that we've got are marginally better paid on average than the similar male employees so we've actually got a vaguely positive pay balance vaguely positive i mean it's it's pretty close but it's it, that's good and and that's not come about because anybody has sat there and said we've got to go and do this because we want to get gender diversity or anything we've gone about because we've chosen the best people for the job given them the job and paid them what they're worth and in in some of the cases it's turned out that that has that has produced this result I'm proud of it we've got further to go we we, we need other people we need greater uh, spread of people but uh, I think we've we've made a we've made an effort and we should uh, we should continue to work on that. And I would counsel other firms to do the same. Comes to leadership.
0: And, and lots of lo- larger organisations have this constant quest to become more innovative and more agile and more, you know, the digital transformation journey that everybody's going through. And therefore they need the, those skills so, so keenly, uh, which are coming from, you know, and that, that talents in many, different places. But one of the fundamental sticking points we come across time and time again is this, you know, requirement for presenteeism. And I'm interested in both your opinions about having flexible working models that, um, that, that will allow that's particularly sort of that next cycle, as, as you so beautifully put it about, you know, uh, returning uh, working mothers uh, to be able to work in a very flexible way uh, in in perhaps of quite an institutionalized industry as well. So let me come to you first of all. You know, got any any thoughts around flexible working?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think flexible working is is a buzzword we hear a lot uh, and I think it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Um I think it's, in its in many places it means basically part time working is a form of flexibility. Um I think part time work is a tricky one because what we seem to be seeing is is a sort of penalty. Uh obviously and overall you earn less if you're working part time. Um I don't think we understand enough about part time work and how it affects things like performance ratings. If you're not in the if you're in the office three days a week, how does that affect um, you know how commit, committed you're perceived to be etc um, I don't also don't know don't think we know enough about how working part-time affects men and women for example differently so there's some some evidence suggesting that um, there's actually a larger penalty for men so if you're a man who's working flexibly you're perceived as even less committed uh, which then potentially could mean that actually part-time work becomes a thing kind of a mummy track Um so men don't kind of dare take on part-time work or, or other forms of flexibility. And is that
0: something you're looking at? Yeah, it is something, at. it
1: is something we are looking at uh, as part of, um, um, some of the work we're doing that's, um, with together with the government equalities office who are asking us to look at data from different large corporations across the UK. So one of the things we are very interested in is assessing are there these kind of gendered patterns in terms of who works flexibly, but also what impact does that have on, on their ability then to progress in the organization? Um, I think my personal opinion, um, on this is that it is definitely the way to go. I think the modern workplace needs, you know, people need, have needs that allow them you know, people need to be able to work in different different ways and different patterns. And I think we see a lot of kind of cutting edge firms give their staff that sort of freedom to work where they need to work, when they need to work. Um, but I think we don't understand yet enough about whether that then has a, a kind of different Differential impact on on different
0: groups, and of course, technology is a great enabler to 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 do that. But also, we work in international markets, so the 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 working day gets extended. <laughs> and I know that because I have clients in Australia and also in the States as well. It becomes a very very long working day. Peter, how, how do you how do you kind of charge your organisation to handle not only the the flexible work working force to serve a client base that's international, and uh, but also have a, a central office and a central hub.
2: Yeah, without, uh, without wishing to, to, to sound like a broken record, I, I think, again, it comes back to leadership. It comes back to, do you have a relationship with the employees or, or your employees, which uh, allows you to be able to, A, uh, know that they're doing the work, B, trust them to do the work, uh, and C, know that the quality of the work that they're uh, producing for you is uh, is of um, merchantable quality. and. The most important thing about all of this, though, is that we all live uh, very busy lives. We all live... next to our machines, our computers or our um, cell phones or whatever else for, for emails and all the rest of it. And, and, the, and the idea that one starts work at 9 o'clock in the morning and finishes work at 5 o'clock in the afternoon is possibly true if you're working in a call centre. But any place else, it's, uh, I think, you know rather fanciful to suggest that. Uh, how do you uh, value somebody that wakes up in the middle of the night because they've got to feed a baby or something and answers a few emails? Is that a different quality of work than somebody who sits in the office and, you know, cranks out the same emails during the day. I, I don't know. I don't know. But as far as I'm concerned, in small organisations, for sure, as long as the work gets done, as long as there's proper accountability, uh, and as long as the leadership are okay with trusting people to do it, and, you know, the trust word is very important, I think, in the employment relationship. I think pre- presenteeism uh, it, it, it is is a very overrated sort of uh, metric, which uh, people probably use to hide behind to, to, to to deliver things. I think, on the other hand, though, there's, there's also there's got to be that sort of understanding that there's a sort of. At this point, I suppose I. Get accused of going on a tech rant, but the, 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 there is a there is a very real technical problem that um, you know. Very often, because systems have been designed to do things, the only things that those systems can do are those things they were designed to do. So, if you've got a problem that isn't contemplated or wasn't contemplated by the original developer of the system, it's almost impossible to fix it. It's very very difficult to do something that's not on the system. So, for example, have you ever tried on one of the uh, well-known shopping uh, uh, websites to buy a holiday? No, you can't. Why not? Because they were never coded to deliver holidays. You can buy a book about holidays. You could buy swimming trunks and suntan lotion and sunglasses, but you can't buy a holiday. Why not? Because they're not coded to do it. You can try as much as you like. You'll never do it. And I think one of the things that we've got to be very mindful of as we go forwards and I certainly see this from my own perspective, is that very often the answers that are given in multiple choice type tech interactions are designed for a very, very limited and narrow group of people and consumers. We've got to be much more inclusive. We've got to be much more able to accept that certain people have different views and Older people sometimes can't see things properly. They can't hear things properly. They find double negatives very confusing. These are things which, as community gets older, and uh, um, you know, these problems uh, will become will become greater. So we've got to be really thoughtful about lots of our technology, as well as working practices,
0: and, and again, sort of coming back to the, um, the the digital transformation journey and the the appetite for organisations to to try and be more, you know, but uh, innovative in the way that they serve their customers as well. Uh, it strikes me there from what Peter was saying was that requires then some corporate re- reimagination, if you like. Tina, um, do, do you see organisations rethinking and then thinking about how they encode, and I mean that in its broader sense, uh, some of its practices in order to be able to drive change and therefore. Uh, embrace new talents coming through.
1: Certainly, we do. So I think we are in, in a lucky position in the Via Real Insights team in that we get approached by organisations who've uh, who've understood the importance of diversity and and who really want to find new ways to tackle uh, the problem. And I should say diversity and inclusion. So they're sort of thinking about this in a broader way. Um, and I think what they're coming to us for is is saying, look, you know, we want to try some innovative things. Um, we think we've got the data. We we're um, you know we understand sort of you know our gender differences in terms of pay in terms of progression um can we tweak can we sort of use some this rigorous methodology to test some tweaks and changes to our existing processes so i think definitely there's there's demand Um, I would agree with Peter that a lot of it comes down to leadership Um, and I think in particular the word I like to use in this context is humility so leaders especially if they are sort of um, pale male and you know kind of not necessarily representative of, of some of those groups they're trying to support move up in the organization it's so important I can really tell the difference between leaders who kind of talk the talk versus the leaders who kind of walk the talk and they're typically the ones who come in saying look I don't know what it's like to be a woman or a member of a minority or I don't know what your experience is like tell me what it's like and I think that's that's where you really get good leadership and and they're also often the leaders who then are willing to put in place at some actual structural changes and some actual social accountability. And I think that's the sort of second point I wanted to make is around the importance of having some accountability mechanisms in organizations. Uh, And I don't mean just having a DNI lead, as important as that is. I'm saying, what I mean is having someone, ideally a senior leader in the organization, whose job it is to monitor progress, to, who can ask for data, who can question decisions that have been made, who can go to people saying, I noticed that on this shortlist for this executive position, there were no women, for example, um, and say, why is that? Why did you not request the headhunters to give you a 50-50 shortlist? And so to have someone in that kind of senior position who has the power to go in and question, um, I think is is what, again, from the sort of behavioural science side seems to be um, really the way forward. Let's take a
0: moment to turn to Cynthia and for some research to support the discussion today.
4: In 2015, Lawrence Layden wrote an article called Bringing 21st Century Technology into Banking. The article is about four essential elements of 21st century banking, all of which still ring true today.
3: The four elements are, one, convenience, putting the needs of the customer first before the wants and needs of the bank. Banks that can't be flexible in adapting their services to suit consumer convenience risk jeopardising long-term success and sacrificing market share. Two, relevance. Communication must be personalised and relevant to the context of the customer, with real-time banking and maximised self-service underpinned with personalised, tailored advice when needed. Three, responsiveness. There must be a consistency of message and service delivery which employees should be empowered to deliver. Employees need access to all the latest and most relevant data if they are to respond accordingly. And finally, reliability. Banks cannot afford to have an unreliable reputation. Recent research from the Economist Intelligence Unit found that consumers expect the same quality experience as that provided by large internet companies. Reliability is at the very core of quality experience.
4: A 2017 article in Financial News clearly highlights that city executives over 50 are most definitely not over the hill. With many years of experience in managing people, understanding issues, making decisions and dealing with problems... Fifty-somethings have a huge amount to offer the financial services sector. Opportunities include non-exec roles, consulting, training and positions in startups. Other options include teaching, lecturing or even politics. This may also be the perfect time to retrain or develop skills in relatively new areas such as fintech.
0: Thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not with an S, diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at diversitypod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating. It all helps promote the show. So just um, thinking about the, some of the dynamics at play when it comes to finding talent, the role of recruitment firms is cl- clearly very key. I mean, Peter, do you brief your recruitment firms differently? Oh yes,
2: I mean very much so. I mean, I think one of the one of the uh, quick wins, one of the early lessons that I would uh, I would identify is that uh, if when you're uh, recruiting somebody, you go and choose the recruitment firm and you don't ask them. What their um, uh, policy is about recruiting, uh, you know, a, a good diverse mix of people, and what their success is at doing that, then effectively all you're doing is just propagating the um, uh, the old prejudices. So you really do need to work quite carefully at asking that question right up front. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's again goes back to a sort of uh, uh, a, a sense of yourself about who you want to work with and who are the sort of people you want to work with, and clearly, a, a, a good um, a good recruitment firm uh, that has a good track record of recruiting across the spectrum is very powerful.
0: And thinking about the um, the impact, which is always the big question to finish on, which is how do you evaluate the impact of diversity and inclusion?
1: I think evaluation is key. We were just talking now about recruitment. There was an interesting study uh, in the Harvard Business Review um, very recently, uh, which showed um quite depressingly that um, adding a one one woman on a four candidate shortlist did absolutely nothing to increase the chance of a woman being selected. So basically, that woman still gets considered as a token person, a token woman, and is kind of still sending that implicit message that really what you want to do is hire a bloke. It's un- it's not until you add at least two women out of four that you're actually starting to see that the chance of hiring a woman. Um, go up. So that's an example of something where by using an actual experimental design, researchers were able to evaluate and say, actually, it does matter how you construct shortlist. Just just having a woman on a shortlist doesn't necessarily uh, make things better. So I think that's the approach that we try and put forward and help organizations with when it comes to other diversity initiatives so again research suggests that networking programs and initiatives where you bring women for example together um, to talk about things and hear talks etc seem to be very helpful for white women at least in the american context but seem to do very little to help women from other minority groups to progress the converse is true for mentoring programs. So it seems, at least again in the US, that um, offering mentoring programs doesn't really support white women, but seems to support minority women. And I think we're at the start of starting to understand these things and and what we need to do in in the sort of tech sector and financial services sectors, really, when we are introducing these initiatives, actually have ahead of time thought about how am, how am I going to measure this in a meaningful way rather than just asking people did they like the programme? Because most people will say yes, I liked it. I chatted to other people like me. Um, actually look at did it change something meaningful in terms of who gets promoted, in terms of who sits on the Exco, um, etc.
0: It's been a really fascinating discussion. I know you're both incredibly busy so I just want to take a moment to thank you both, Tina and Peter. Thank you.
2: you This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, Subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.